I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Our guest psychologist, Dr. Keltner, wants us to have more awe in our lives, that feeling of astonishment, of wonder, when we feel connected to something larger than ourselves. It's a difficult emotion to describe, but we know it when we experience it because we can feel it in our bodies. Keltner has been studying the science of human emotions for years and exploring the experience and meaning of awe after the death of his beloved brother, Rolf. He describes in his new book, Awe, being at Rolf's bedside as he was dying and feeling his brother being pulled away from him. Keltner writes, I felt small, quiet, humble, pure. The boundaries that separated me from the outside world faded. I felt surrounded by something vast and warm. My mind was open, curious, aware, wondering. Keltner said he felt awe. While we tend to associate awe with big events and experiences, Keltner believes that awe is all around us in our everyday lives. There are enormous benefits if we learn to pay attention to it, and that's our topic for today's show. Dr. Keltner is a professor of psychology at the University of California at Berkeley, where he is also co-director of the Greater Good Science Center. And Dr. Keltner, nice to have you with us today on The Connection. Thank you so much, Marty. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with us. And I was very touched by your writing Mm. about your brother. Your book is dedicated to him. You talk about him being your companion in awe. How did awe help you deal with your grief with his death? Yeah, you know, my brother and I had a remarkable childhood together. He was one year younger, and we grew up in the wilds of Laurel Canyon in the late 60s and then in the foothills of the Sierras and just did everything that young children might do to find awe. We swam in rivers and went to protests and the like. Mm. And when he passed away, and thank you for describing that, because it's important that people know, you know, the end of life is a source of awe around the world. It's a great mystery to make sense of it. And to your question, Marty, um, after his uh, passing, like a lot of people in profound grief and like a lot of people coming out of the pandemic, uh, I was uh, disoriented and alone and disconnected. And, and fundamentally, I had lost his presence in my relationship to the world, his, his way of bringing wisdom. Uh, and so very intentionally, I was doing this science on all, gearing up to write a book. And I decided, you know, I'm struggling so much. Uh, I will go find awe because I know it's good for your heart and your immune system and your mind. And that, in effect, is what the book is, is a search for awe. Has this search for awe changed you as a human being, as a person, as a man? Uh, profoundly so. Um, I, you know, one of the things that awe does is it opens you. It opens you to new ideas. It opens you to new people. It opens you to new ways to find meaning and happiness. And so in this search for awe in brief, uh, it opened me to forms of music and new areas of nature, which were easier for me, but also to questions about spirituality, questions about life and death, questions about why am I here? Uh, and it really sharpened my sense of purpose, uh, the search for awe, which I think is one of the reasons why evolution built this emotion into the human psyche. It's so interesting. I actually Googled the word awe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tend to do things like that. And Good. this this definition has really changed over the centuries. And in, in, you know, almost uh, a thousand years ago, it meant fear or terror. 
So yeah. somehow awful has become awesome. Yeah. What does that tell us, do you think? Well, words always change in their meaning, right? And so the etymology of awe traces back to the 8th and 9th century words in Old English and Norse, where it really was about terror and fear and dread. And as I write in the book, you know, uh, 13, 1400 years ago, the world was much more dreadful. And That's fearful. true. Right. You know, young babies died regularly. People lived to about 45. There were plagues and, you know, every imaginable disease that led to the decay of the body. It was horrifying. And, and we've made a lot of progress. And as a result, and a lot of a result of a lot of different things, literacy and, you know, education, like people, awe has become a much more positive emotion. We find around the world about three quarters of experiences of awe feel good. They yeah. feel empowering and, and full of enthusiasm. Awe is such a, as I mentioned in my introduction, it's kind of hard. I think everyone knows what it is we're talking about, but, yeah. it's, but it's hard to put words to what awe is. And again, I, yeah. I do think that people do experience this in their body, but it's also oh, yeah. something very paradoxical because on the one hand, you know, the sense of yourself, your ego, I guess, for lack of a better word, kind of fades away and then you feel this connection to lar something larger than yourself. So you're both nothing and everything all at the same time. Yeah, you just gave me goosebumps thinking about that paradox. No, and that's part you know? of awe, right? Goosebumps, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> so we know awe. Awe is the feeling and emotion you have when you encounter vast mysteries. Uh, we feel it in our body with tears and goosebumps and a warmth in the chest and, and other physiological sensations. But at its core, the psychological meaning outside of the body is this paradox of we know from all kinds of studies, both in the brain and in self-report data, that the self kind of vanishes. You no longer are thinking about yourself. You are not wondering what other people think about you. Thank goodness, you know. Yeah, for uh, once, it, right? For yeah. once. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you feel like you're, you're part of something larger. You may feel like you're part of an ecosystem or a, a movement in politics or a piece of music or a family cultural history, right? Suddenly you're aware of like, wow, you know, when I see the Redwoods on the Berkeley campus and they're hundreds of years old, they used to be thousands of years old, I, I just stop and I think like, I'm part of the history of this place that... Several hundred years ago, there was some kind of human looking at trees like this that where they were having experiences, and I'm part of that, right? So awe diminishes the self, but as Jane Goodall said, it makes you amazed that you're part of things larger than the self, which we need today. And it seems the way you write that we would recognize awe around the world. It's kind of universal. People's eyes widen, their eyebrows go up, their mouth drops, their head tilts, yeah. that there's something that humans do when they feel awe that is universal. It is. And we've done a lot of work on that, you know, um, that awe has these universal facial bodily features. It has a universal vocalization. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Right. Uh, Alan Cowan, coming out of my lab, just published a paper, 144 countries. 75% similarity in the awe expression to things like fireworks, right? So it, it, there is a deep humanness to it. And not only that, but Jane Goodall, one of my heroes, writes that awe, you see it in chimpanzees, right? Yeah. They, when they are around vast waterfalls or winds or storms, they fluff up their fur, which is the beginnings of, of pyloerection or goosebumps. They open their mouth. They look like they're in reverence. So I think this is a 
a mammalian emotion about getting out of ourselves to connect to larger things. You referenced this earlier, but but I want to just make sure our listeners um, understand that that you have you describe in this book several different kinds of awes. One having yeah. to do with moral beauty, which are viewing acts of kindness that you see uh, one person might do for another, collective effervescence, which are sporting events or weddings or reunions. There's nature, of course. There's music. You reference that. Visual design, the spiritual stories of life and death, and then epiphanies. So when you study the science of awe, you can kind of capture it with those descriptions. That, that, you know, I don't think you can ever camp- capture the full essence right. of awe. It's just so in- mysterious in some sense, which I love about it. But, Marty, thank you. You know, as we started to think about, hey, awe is the emotion you feel in reaction to vast mysteries. It has this bodily response, tears and goosebumps, small self, connection to a larger thing. We're like, where do we feel it? You mm-hmm. know, that's a fundamental question about emotions. And we gathered stories of awe from 26 countries. And they did. They, they, when we classified them, they pointed to what I call the eight wonders of moral beauty and nature and collective movement and music and visual design, spiritual stuff, big ideas. Some people just freak out when they hear about infinity you know? right. <laughs> or, you know, or big data. They're like, wow. <laughs> and then finally, and this really brought me comfort, uh, life and death you know, mm-hmm. around the world. People write about, I just remember these poignant stories of holding a sister's hand as she passes away, you know, and, and just reflecting on the meaning of, of a sister's life. So, so those are where we feel awe and present mysteries to understand. Well, you got me thinking about awe in my life. And, and speaking of mm. birth and death, I mean, you know, being pregnant, giving birth, yeah. I mean, not to be yeah. too graphic here, but literally pushing our son out into the world mm. was awesome. But also being with my mother when she was in the hospital yeah. and was dying and finally mm. said, you know what? I'm done with living. I want to die. I'm ready to go. And being with her in that moment, you know, what do you say when someone says that? But nonetheless, being with someone as they, as you describe with your brother, just slip away from you. Yeah, you know, it's been so profound. I didn't really mean to, I didn't, I would never want to write about my brother's passing. It was the hardest thing I ever went through. Sure. Uh, but it happened right as the, and it led, inspired this book. And, you know, what it has led to is people writing me, uh, medical doctors writing me, studying the science of near death, where people do, for the most part, find a readiness, a peace about it. And, and for a person who's living, and watching someone pass, that is astounding, right? The wisdom that the people who are passing have. So there are many horrors to death, yeah. obviously, and I saw them with my brother's colon cancer. But, sure. you know, what, what it, the study of awe and grief and bereavement and dying tells us is there is a mystery there that humans find a lot of meaning and transformation in. We, I think, tend to associate awe or wonder with children. I mean, because they are yeah, discovering yeah. the world, they're asking questions, uh, they're little scientists, they're little philosophers. Mm. And I wonder, when you get older, you feel like you're kind of, you become kind of know-it-all. <laughs> and whether there's <laughs> something that children can teach us about awe. I think there are profound things that children teach us about awe. Um, and we've just published one of the first papers that Awe in children has a lot of the benefits we've been talking about, less egoism, narcissism, more altruism. Um, 
not only do children have a lot to teach us about awe, and that's why a lot of great wisdom traditions, you know, like the Buddhist traditions, tell us, like, have a child's mind. Don't label things. Don't have pre preconceptions or prejudices or, or expectations. Approach the world anew. Uh, but also, I will say, uh, I think being around young children as a caregiver also is a source of awe and worth remembering. So, yeah, I very much, Marty, look forward to this next science of awe and mm -hmm. children and how important it is to education, which we found, how much we need to build it back into our schools and families and homes. Yeah, we're almost having a break here, but you know, oftentimes, you know, those art classes uh, oh. are, are the ones that get cut. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and that oftentimes, I mean, sometimes there's awe in math, <laughs> but there's awe yeah. certainly in art as well. Well, let's take a very short break and we'll get back to our guest. Uh, Dr. Keltner is his name, our guest today on The Connection. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also co-director of the Greater Good Science Center. We're talking about his new book. It's titled Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Much more to talk about after this very short break. Also, we'll be talking with Yumi Kendall. She's a cellist for the Philadelphia Orchestra about awe and music. Be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moskowain, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Today we're talking about awe that sense of wonder when we feel part of something bigger than ourselves. Our guest is Dr. Keldner. He's an expert in the science of human emotions. His new book, appropriately titled Awe, is about how it has propelled our evolution as a species and helped build communal bonds. And I should say that uh, Dr. Keltner writes about music in his new book. He says that music teaches us about love and suffering, justice, power, community, and, quote, how a pattern of sounds can lead us to understand the vast mysteries of life. Well, I've certainly felt that uh, way going to Philadelphia Orchestra concerts and watching award-winning cellist Yumi Kendall play. Uh, Keltner interviewed her for the book where she described how she finds awe in making music. And Yumi Kendall, a great pleasure. I am a fangirl. <laughs> nice to have you with us on The Connection. And we're going to get uh, Dr. Keltner back in on us in just a moment or two. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Well, absolutely. And I have to say, as someone who has sat in the in the uh, tiers at at the uh, at the Kimmel Center and also the front row, um, I I I really love watching you play with such passion, with such focus, with such with such intensity, and with such joy as well. And I wonder for you when you're. When you're playing and when you're in the music and it's working and it's going well, what that experience is for you? Oh, that's such a great, I, I love this framing. It's, it brings back so many memories for me, particularly in one of the moments I spoke about, I wrote about in Dacker's book. Um, and, you know, I just had a concert last night with a chamber group here in Washington, D.C., where I am calling in from. Um, and one one particularly strong one from the book was this Mozart Requiem that we performed in Saratoga, and 
the layers of time, like transcending time and feeling connected to um, actually my grandfather who had died, but and I had we had also performed this requiem. Um, the week that he had died, and I, I had just so many, and then we pre- played it again this last summer when, uh, right before I spoke with Dacker, and so it was like a decade in between, and all of this transcendent emotion coming back to me, and I actually cried in that performance at Saratoga um, because I felt like overwhelmed with emotions. My grandfather is the reason I play cello. Right, your grandfather brought Suzuki to America, correct? Yes, yes. Um, back in the 1960s, he and um, some other music teachers in America saw a video of many, many Japanese children playing together, and they went to Japan to see what if Japanese children playing together and went to Japan to mm-hmm. understand more about what Suzuki was. So, yes, he and then he introduced it to the Americas. Well, I, I hope you don't mind. I, I do want to play, actually, uh, the Mozart oh. Requiem, and this is the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Philadelphia Singers Chorale rehearsing Mozart's Requiem. This is 2011 at the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts, and I saw, Yumi, the camera panning the orchestra, and I saw you in there. So mm-hmm. I, I just so, so listeners know what it is you were describing. Let's just play a couple of minutes, and we are a couple, just a minute or so, and we can and we can even talk over it. Okay. So you're playing, and as you describe in this book, Yumi, you're crying, you're thinking of your grandfather, and you're feeling awe, correct? Yeah, that's amazing because that actual performance was um, about two weeks after he died because that was 2011, um, January, and that's when he died. So that's taken from that that performance. And I remember actually thinking, should I take you know bereavement time off from work to deal with this and grieve in the moment? But playing was actually my way of grieving. Um, and so the intensity of that gratitude that I feel for my grandfather for opening the music doors for me to play cello um, and the sadness of his of the loss of his life, of course. Um, and of course, a requiem itself is sure. for the dead. So um, kind of a eulogy in itself. So in a way, my decision to actually play work that particular week with this piece of music was so profound. I mean, a goosebumps and... Um, I'm not actually sure if I sobbed on stage. <laughs> I think <laughs> you did, according to, to the way you wrote about it. <laughs> but 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 nonetheless, let me get Dr. Keltner back in on the conversation. And and sorry about that, Dr. We're happy to have you back. And we have yeah. Yumi Kendall with us. And it's Hi, so. Yumi. <laughs> Hi, Dr. <laughs> I know you you two know each other. But what's so interesting is that for the three of us. It's been death and loss and grief that has inspired us to feel awe. And I wonder, Doctor, if you could, does that surprise you? It did surprise me. And and what it tells us is, you know, and throughout the book, awe allows us to take life's trials and tribulations, the death of a grandfather in Yumi's case, the death of a brother, see the mystery in it, see the deep questions that are embedded in, in those difficult times in life. And then the mind kicks into wonder and creation, you know, and turns to music in Yumi's case, to poetry in other cases, to 
just making sense of the world. And so it's such a, uh, an important lesson for us today that in hard times, um, you know, our minds gravitate to awe to, to transform. And, and Yumi's story, which was, I remember uh, deciding, awe is so hard to understand. I just have to go talk to people who feel it and live it and perform it. And Yumi was my first interview. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and, and <laughs> just surprised. her story, her stories <laughs> of how how art and creativity are ways that we find awe in um, making sense of the loss of people we care most about were transformative for me. Well, and you mean you play the cello. This is an instrument. You have to hug it. And you say in, in Keltner's book, and this is uh, talking about uh, a piece that you played by John Adams. She said, or you say, when I play, I feel the vibration in my heart. Those patterns go out into space. They envelop people, surround them in texture. It's beyond language, beyond thought, beyond religion. It's like a cashmere blanket of sound. And I think as someone who doesn't play an instrument but sits in the audience, I know what you're talking about. That's, um, it cut out just a little bit, so I'll, I'll address that um, as best I can. The, the feeling for me as a performer is sound is physical, and I feel, in, especially in the Philadelphia Orchestra, with our blanket of sound, the cashmere of sound, this texture, it, it feels like a blanket. You're wrapped in this beautiful, soft, rich blanket, and it it surpasses like what our aural, you know, our ear experiences. It's feeling. It's complete, total embodiment. But for you, Docker, and not but, but but you describe what happens with these sound waves. How we process that through our brains and our bodies. What's going on? I mean, it's remarkable, and I have to say, thank you for reading that that quote of of Yumi's Marty. When I read that out to people, they literally ooh and awe. <laughs> Music is a cashmere blanket of sound. And, and Yumi's right, like there's this new science that I review of how these sound waves go into your ear, they move their way through the brain, they activate the vagus nerve and parts of your peripheral physiology, they lower cortisol, they slow your heart, they activate regions of the brain associated with reward that puts you directly, as Yumi observes, into this state of openness to the transcendent. And then, then you get into the psychological meaning that music creates, which is another mystery of how in the and Yumi's quotes about feeling the presence of her deceased grandfather and and appreciating his life and gratitude how can sound waves bring us into this aesthetic state of gratitude or reverence or appreciation and we, you know science gets only so far in understanding that Yumi's quotes bring us to that very truth and i think most people will feel that that's one of the transcendent qualities of music is that it teaches us fundamental lessons about life. And that's Dr. Keltner. We're talking about his new book. It's titled Awe, The Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Also with us is Yumi Kendall. She's a cellist with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and she's featured in Dr.'s book. I was at a, a, a year or so ago, Yumi, the Philadelphia Orchestra's performance of Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, my favorite piece of music. And every time I hear it, and, and obviously seeing it being performed, I literally feel like my heart is going to leap out of my chest.
was the Philadelphia Orchestra performing Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, The Death of Tybalt. And I wonder for you what it's like to play something like that. Absolutely. And even in The Death of Tybalt, that particular movement has a lot of anger. Yes. Um, and and grit, like even playing with the bow against the string, the way the horsehair of the bow like grabs the string of the cello, there's grit in the sound. And that like even feels like the anger that is represented in that movement because of the death of Tybalt and the families and the feuding. It's kind of like representative of that, that feud, that, yeah, that fighting. Um, and for, for me, it's very visceral. It's a very physical kind of relates to the cashmere. It's like another yeah. emotion of texture in a way um, that on the other side, you know, the, the soothing sounds of, of, and smooth sounds of, and smooth sonorities of singing and sadness, um, but that 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 piece. I'm so glad to know that you love it. I love I'll it. Be thinking of you every time we play. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. That, that makes me feel really quite awesome. I have to say, um, Yumi, it's interesting. You have a master's in positive psychology, which you got at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, interest. What is your interest in that? My interest in that um, actually came out of. Um, some organizational, the the Philadelphia Orchestra's organizational struggles back in 2010. And I went to the bookstore of Barnes and Noble and wondered, gosh, you know, I found myself in the, in the business section with all these red books on power and leadership (laughs) and authority and stuff. Cause I thought, you know, other industries must also go through an occasional struggle. How do other industries deal with it and what can they do that we can learn from and possibly vice versa. And long story short, I read Give and Take by Adam Grant. I emailed him. He connected me to the Positive Psychology Center. And I learned about the Positive Psychology Program and and studied this and just found an entirely new community, including Dacker and other great minds and great thinkers and researchers. And being able to connect research and practice together for me has just been a thrill of a lifetime. You also love to draw, and I think that's that's an interesting uh, sort of sidebar t- to your life. What is that all about? Wow, that's amazing. That's another textural thing for me. That's from my Waldorf um, education, my Waldorf upbringing, and a lot of artwork um, and painting and watercolor and colored pencils and shading. And so maybe my fascination with texture comes from that feeling of the pencil or the crayon on the paper and the roughness of the paper or the smoothness of the paper. I, I love, I love that. Um, so it's a very sensory filled experience for me, art generally. <laughs> I saw an interview that you did with Docker where you talked about uh, when you're playing with the orchestra, you will often pick out someone, maybe someone you know or someone you don't know, um, who's there listening. Um, how does that, why is that important for you? That. I love that you asked that also because now I know that you love Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. But if you're ever at a concert, oh, I would love to I'll be know. There. Yes. Directing my energy to a particular person helps my emotional focus in performance. It helps lend meaning. It helps lend direction to who it's for, as opposed to 2,000 people, all of whom I'm appreciating for being there and sharing and absorbing the experience and making it such a rich connection. Um, but personalizing it to a single individual helps me personally in my own personal performance and contribution. Um, and even directionally, if I know where somebody is in the hall, even if I can't see them, 
and they text me before, like a friend will text me, hey, Yumi, I'm sitting in the third tier, like above the <laughs> I will just know, be aware of that and be, be so conscious of that in my performance that I'm still emotionally connected to that individual. And it, it kind of radiates out, I think, and so it seems. Well, I mean, so you're connected to this individual, but that also what connects you with the rest of the orchestra, with the conductor, with the composer? Yes, it's, it's so it, it opens me up to connections. And Dacker does write about this, how how we become more open and more connected psychologically, emotionally. Um, and so for me, it does open me up to be thinking about the composer's intentions, to be connected to the conductor's gestures, to be connected to way across to the back of the violin section or way back to the timpani. Um, so I'm like reaching across the stage musically to to connect as much as possible. So that maybe that one person I end up playing for is like the spark of the fire that becomes the musical conflagration. And I wonder for you, Yumi, just picking, I know you're not Dr. Keltner, but just picking up on what he was saying about how all sort of can quiet the voice of the self, even as someone who's playing. Ah, that sense of humility. Um, because in the face of, I mean, for me personally, the in the face of sort of the majesty of and grandeur, what and I think Dacker mentioned this, like with, you know, seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time, there's a sense of sort of welcome smallness <laughs> that one can feel like I don't matter in a beautiful way because there's so much beauty around me. Um, and there's a, there is a lot, a lot of social science um, that supports why this happens and that magnitude, the sense of magnitude around us um, and why, and, and then our relative smallness. So I, I, it actually is a very beautiful feeling in concert too, that feeling of sure. shared both, feeling like I'm contributing, but also that I'm a part of something larger than myself. We're going to take a very short break and then get back to our conversation with Philadelphia Orchestra cellist Yumi Kendall and psychologist Dr. Keltner. We've been talking about wonder, awe, and music. Keltner's new book is titled Awe, The Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And you're listening to Yumi Kendall and the Mainline Symphony Orchestra performing Tchaikovsky's Variations on a Rococo Theme. We'll be right back.
You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoane talking with psychologist Dr. Keltner, who says we need more awe in our lives. Those moments of astonishment that connect us to something larger than ourselves. We've been talking about his new book called Awe. And we've also been talking with Yumi Kendall, cellist for the Philadelphia Orchestra. And Dr. Fingers crossed that we've got you on a half-decent uh, line here. Uh, Yumi talked about... Um, crying while she was playing yeah. this uh, Mozart Requiem. And I wonder um, mm. how important or how significant crying is to this feeling of awe. It's profound. And, you know, awe ha- elicits this suite of bodily responses, which, which Walt Whitman called the body. The soul is in the body. You you have goosebumps, You, which is a specific physiological reaction. Sometimes there's the release of oxytocin, this peptide that helps us connect. And then you cry and really subtle work has found that those tears are activated by a part of your nervous system that helps you calm and connect to other people. And psychologically, when we have those tears of awe or what ancient theologians called tears of grace, uh, those tears are really signs that we feel we're joining with other people to appreciate something really significant. So it's interesting, science tells us these aren't tears of loss or bitterness or grief. They're tears of transcendence, of union. You mean we have to say goodbye to you, but is, is does that make sense? Does that feel like those tears that you sometimes cry when you play? That makes complete sense. Um, it makes complete sense. They're, they're like tears of connectedness and actually relief. Yeah. Um, in a way, that's when I was, when that um with the Mozart Requiem moment um, and thinking about my grandfather, um, that explains it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, such a pleasure, Yumi Kendall, for having you today on The Connection. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And again, Yumi Kendall, cellist for the Philadelphia Orchestra. Doctor, let me go back to you and, and explore a little bit more this sort of body sensation sure. of awe. You also talk about the vagus nerve, and there's some interesting yeah. new research about this particular nerve. It seems to connect the brain and our gut, you know, the nervous system and our digestive tract. How, how does awe affect the vagus nerve, do you think? Yeah, you know, the vagus nerve is this remarkable bundle of nerves that starts at the top of your spinal cord, wanders through your face and your throat, heart, lungs, digestive organs, projects into the gut, receives information from the flora and fauna there. Uh, and it it looks, and Steve Porges made the case early, that this is a part of your nervous system that calms your body down, opens you up, helps you connect. Uh, it's about calming and connecting. And studies in our lab show that it, it really is associated with what you might think of as the moral self-transcendent emotions of compassion. We mm-hmm. found that. And then we did research showing that feelings of awe, natural beauty, natural wonders, and people's goodness, moral beauty, activate this vagus nerve. And then what we take that to mean psychologically is the body is getting ready to open our minds to new ideas, to mysteries, to connect to other people, to create what Yumi does, which is culture and community. So it's a physiological underpinning of a lot of good stuff for human beings. Is there, though, a dark side of awe? And I'm thinking of that, what, what's described or what you described as the collective effervescence, you know, the sporting yeah. events or the reunions or the political rallies. Because I'm yeah. wondering whether, you know, we also see this in, in a Nazi rally to, you know, sort of cut to the chase here, that, yeah, that awe can be used to sort of whip up anger and hatred. 
Yeah, you know, there there are dark sides to every human capacity, music, you know, visual art and awe. And uh, political scientists are getting very interested in how awe can be a tool of manipulation to whip up the masses. There's research showing that awe accounts for the virality of information, like you might imagine conspiratorial information or QAnon. Part of its thrill is the awe that it generates. So, so you know, a lot of people have noted that these emotions aren't necessarily good or bad. They, they orient us towards patterns of action. And then we as a society have to look at them and say, is this what we is this a, a, a broader benefit of of this emotion and, and take action? In fact, you even describe this is more at a sporting event where people uh, do. The, I think they still do the wave. I haven't been in a while. But the idea of sort of people in unison, you know, moving across the, the stadium um, in, in concert, that there's something physical about being, I guess, in awe that shows up in some in people's body movements in a kind of synchronicity. I mean, this is remarkable. And one of the most exciting discoveries for me is that is collective effervescence. We feel awe collectively. We we go we start chanting at a, a spiritual practice. We're um, at a football game. We're at a political march. And just the shared movement puts us into this state that Emile Durkheim a French sociologist called collective effervescence. We feel we're bubbling and thrilled and it, it can bring about a lot of good uh, and it can also bring about a lot of bad. You know, when you think about the massacres in Rwanda, there was yeah. a lot of, you know, collective unison chanting, et cetera, often drug fueled, by the way, that led to egregious, horrific acts. So again, you know, these emotions, we can't get too carried away by them. We no. have to we have to gather together and see what uses it's they're put to. You mentioned uh, drugs, and I'm curious about psychedelics and all. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, you know, or what indigenous scholars call spirit medicines, um, you know, the different compounds, psilocybin and LSD and ayahuasca, et cetera. Yeah, a central hypothesis right now uh, of uh, various scholars is the benefits of these spirit medicines or psychedelics of, you know, overcoming trauma, mm-hmm facing terminal disease, handling stress, et cetera. Why do the these compounds that change serotonin activity in your brain and body, why do they work? And one central hypothesis now is the transcendent states of awe and bliss and ecstasy. They get us out of ourselves. They get us out of our ruminative patterns of thought uh, or traumatic histories and, and lead to new insights. And that's gaining traction and I think will be a, an enduring lesson from that literature. You also talk about the default self. And I guess this is the the part of us that, you know, makes it like our ego, I guess, in a way. It's sort of calling the shots and and makes us sort of be the punctual people we're supposed to be or something, (laughs) something like that. Yeah. So, so it's all sort of in contrast to that, the default self. It is. And, And this is a central lesson and benefit of awe is, you know, the clearly, you know, people, social scientists, you know, parents have been noticing like, man, we are in a very self-focused time, a narcissistic time even, of taking pictures of the self and thinking about the self and ruminating about, am I good enough? And comparing myself to other people on Instagram, et cetera. It is a self-focused time um, for, for good. You know, we, it's good to develop the self and express your identity and pursue individual rights but also bad. Um, there's a lot of 
inspiration that comes from orienting outward to people and the environment. And, you know, one of the things we've learned, Marty, um, is that this self-focus that's at record highs hurts young people, you know, it makes them anxious and depressive and self-harm, et cetera. Uh, and awe counters that. We've already talked about how the paradoxical quality of it, it really diminishes your sense of self. It deactivates a part of the brain, the default mode network that's involved in self-representation and opens us up to how we're part of a, a, a cultural history or a moral movement or nature. And I think that's something a lot of people need right now is to quiet the voice of the self. Indeed. And that is our guest, a psychologist, Dr. Keltner. Let me play a clip from an interview I did a couple of years ago on Radio Times with astronaut Scott Kelly. He spent 340 days floating in the International Space Station, um, and he describes coming back to Earth. They, they actually landed in Russia, and this was after, mm. um, and, and the door opens, and he describes the smell that he that he smells. And I should add that he's a kind of a not wowed by a lot of stuff kind of person, rather matter of fact, like a lot of astronauts. But let's listen to what he had to say. When you come back to Earth and the hatch opens and all of a sudden you have fresh air, which, you know, the air on the space station keeps us alive, but it's not the, it's not always the greatest. No, I can only um, imagine. <laughs> and uh, when that fresh air rushed inside for the first time and you get the, the smell of the burnt uh, grass uh, in the landing area that the capsule... Um, interacts with and the smell of the heat shield which is a uh, that charred smell it almost has this like sweet fragrance and then when they pull you out of the capsule there's like a hundred people there uh, you know it's like uh, just overwhelming to see all these people when you haven't seen a lot of people in a really long time yeah. and doctor i wanted to play that because you talk about all walks you know you're taking a walk yeah. Where you, you and perhaps the, a, a path that you do every day and try to look at it with new eyes. And what I liked about Scott Kelly, no one ever talks about smell, but the smell of grass was the thing that really hit him so hard. Yeah, you know, when we classified these eight wonders, there were people who talked about fragrances and scents and odors, you know, of, you know, and it's funny, one of the great theoreticians of all, Edmund Burke, this Irish philosopher, didn't think you could feel awe from scent and. <sighs> I talked to this woman who worked in the perfume industry in France. She's like, well, that's absurd. You know, I mean, it is <laughs> remarkable to smell a, a spring flower, or a fresh burrito or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, Scott's point is, in some sense, the deepest point uh, that led me to write the book outside of how good awe is for us, you know, learned as I grieve my brother, which is there you can find awe in everything. You know, you uh, and an astronaut has a radical experiment in awe of like getting out of our world and coming back and seeing all that's awe-inspiring. The awe walk that we tested, which you referred to, is a, a very modest version of it, which is go do your walk that a lot of us do, but instead of trying to count your steps or your heartbeat, et cetera, look for awe, you know, hmm. get into a childlike state of wonder, uh, go places that are a little mysterious or surprising and, and just notice things with your senses. And we found it, led to a lot of unbenefited people who are 75 years old or older. So we all can't fly out into space. We all can't go to the Taj Mahal or whatever you, but we can find all around us if we just uh, sort of quiet our default self and expectations and see what's remarkable around us. I mean, use our senses, right? 
yeah, you know, um, <laughs> use our senses, listen to sounds, listen to bird sounds. Uh, part one of the individuals I really came to deeply admire is Rachel Carson. And she has this great essay on Teach Your Child to Wonder, the great environmentalist, Silent Spring and spectacular writer. And she she teaches awe to her nephew by using the senses. You know, listen to the sounds of weather you, you're having in Philadelphia. Look to the colors of spring. Look to the colors of a sunset. Taste things. Uh, feel the wind on your skin, the rain on your skin. The senses are portals to awe as well. Let me read some comments. We asked our, our listeners to share some awe moments. And Diane mm. says, uh, annuals that bloom every year makes her feel awe. Christine said, watching a mother bird feed her babies. Elaine says, as a gardener, I experience awe every day. Every year, female snapping turtles dig shallow holes in my garden and lay eggs. An awesome sight. The mom turtle ignores watchers and continues laying eggs as if in a trance, then covers them and ambles back into the water. And I should say, also, a listener said, I appreciate uh, the conversation today in spite of all the storms uh, rumbling through the air. Area. But it is so interesting, and I guess not surprising, Docker, that we we find awe in nature. Yeah, if we and, look, and there, absolutely, and around the world, you know, we surveyed people in India and Mexico and Brazil and all kinds of different countries, and, and whether it's the ocean or the a sky of stars in the desert or the Alps or you know the the, the spring in a garden, we find awe in nature. And, you know, I, I spend some time talking about indigenous approaches, um, you know, what Dr. Yuri Salidwin calls ecological belonging. And there's a deeper lesson there, which is our feelings of awe in nature make us realize we're part of nature, right? We are part of ecosystems um, that, and it brings us so much wisdom. Yeah. And, and what a lesson for today to, to have an emotion that reminds us that we're just a part of, of this larger planetary system. Uh, and interestingly, on that, awe often leads uh, pretty reliably to environmentally friendly behavior, eating huh. less red meat, uh, consuming less, less fossil fuels. So good emotion for these times. Mark uh, emailed us saying, I'm not a spiritual person, but I am predisposed to seek out moments of awe, especially in nature. And I felt it at yeah. the moment of, of a loved one's death, as Dr. Keltner has. I lost my brother as well just three weeks ago. His decision, excuse me, his death was his decision. I don't feel awe. I don't know where to find it, but I know it's a necessary part of healing. Um, and it's, there's not a formula here, is there, Dr. Keltner? There's not, you know, and but I but I do and I would encourage the listener, you know, uh, in, in this specific case to look at my book. It, there's a lot about how I grieved and got very lost, felt no awe and found it again. But, yeah, there's no formula. But I, those eight wonders help us. Where do you find awe really robustly? What kind of music? Uh, what forms of nature? What sources of moral beauty? Uh, and then to. Put aside your devices, give yourself some moments, you know, and there are concrete exercises you can do. I write about in the book of, you know, finding on listening to thunderstorms, yeah. uh, finding on watching a game or listening to music. So we can find it. 
and it, it brings a lot of benefits. We're almost out of time here, but just quoting from the very last paragraph of your book, uh, you say, being part of the scientific story of awe has taught me that the evolution of our species built into our brains and bodies and emotion, our species-defining passion that enables us to wonder together about the great questions of living, what is life, why am I alive, why do we all die, what is the purpose? Is that in a sort of in a sense, what all can do for us? It does. It, it, you know, we are in a period of time where young people, older people are wondering what is the new meaning of life, right? Climate crises, racial crises, et cetera, political crises. What, will, what sources of meaning will really guide us through these times? And all points you to them. It gives you a sense of this is a community I'm part of. This is what I care about. And it taught me that during a very hard time of grief and, and the science aligns with that that thinking. Well, Dr. Keltner, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Really appreciate it. It's been wonderful, Marty. Thank you. You're very welcome. And again, his book is called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Al Banks, our intrepid engineer today on uh, on The Connection, uh, helping us navigate through the storms that have been rolling through the area. Debbie Builder is senior producer of The Connection. Paige Murray-Bessler is producer. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us.